Welcome to Unpacking Us, a podcast where we unpack the deepest questions faced by Pakistani society, politics, and the economy. I'm your host, Asad Liakhan. It was the late 1960s when Bhutto popularized the slogan of Roti Kapra Makan, Food, Clothing, Shelter which in some ways placed affordable housing near the center of the national policy narrative. More than 50 years have passed since then, and the problem of adequate and affordable housing has gotten much, much worse in Pakistani cities, despite the fact that since 1970, Pakistan's GDP per capita in US dollars and accounting for inflation has almost tripled. Living standards have increased across the income distribution, but we haven't seen the same kind of improvement in housing for low-income people in our cities. Part of the problem is demographics. We have experienced what can only be described as a population explosion, and we have seen rates of urbanization that are unprecedented in human history. But that's not the whole story. It's not simply that land is scarce, that we have more people, and that more of them live in cities. Because at the same time, housing for the elite has flourished. To help us unpack why there is a lack of adequate and affordable housing in Pakistani cities, we have with us Fiza Sajjad, who's a PhD candidate in human geography and urban studies at the London School of Economics, where she's currently doing research on speculative practices in real estate. Fiza is an MIT-trained urban planner and she has been working in this space for almost 10 years, both as a researcher and a practitioner. My thinking on this problem has been heavily shaped by her work, and I'm very excited to have her on Unpacking Us today. Fiza, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Asit, for, for having me here. So I want to start off our conversation on the urban housing shortage today with the basics. Uh, we frequently hear about the housing shortage in terms of what's called the unmet demand for housing. Now, before we talk about how much shortage there is or the reasons behind the shortage, can you start off by helping us unpack what it means conceptually to have an unmet demand for housing? So an unmet demand for housing can mean several things, right? And and like you said, it's, it's, it's actually more than just a shortage of housing, for instance. So at its very basic core uh, level, I, I would say that an unmet demand for housing exists if you would like to be able to to buy or to rent a house, uh, but you can't afford to do so. And you're priced out of the market, let's say, right? And, and end up being homeless. Um, and so that in that case, your demand remains unmet. And that's actually not very common in Pakistan. I mean, of course, there's demolitions that are being carried out by our government itself, which isn't helping. Uh, but that's one kind of form in which you can have demand that remains unmet. But you can also have unmet demand if you have access to shelter or to housing, but you just like to be able to move out for a variety of reasons, right? So you may just want to move out because the house is overcrowded or it's congested or the space itself is substandard or you lack connection to services in the neighborhood, or maybe you just want to move out altogether. But, you know, you may be living with a joint family and uh, you may, for all these, you know, uh, for this desire to move out, but you may not be able to afford to do so. Uh, but at the same time, affordability isn't the only reason people 
people's demand remains unmet, right? So, for example, in a city, you may have affordable housing on the peripheries of the city, uh, but it may be really far from places of work. So then again, you can't uh, really move to those places realistically. So your demand remains unmet. But but unmet demand can also mean that you have a house and you are not interested in moving out of it, but you just have a demand for, unmet demand for improved housing, right? So you may just want to make physical improvements to your house, but can't. You may like to add rooms, but you can't. So, you, so, so that's largely how I think about demand that remains unmet um, at the moment in the market. So there's various kinds of unmet demand. You're saying there's people already living in in inadequate houses or people living with too many people um, or people who are living not at the right place. So they could be at the periphery of a city. So you mentioned that um, the data on this is kind of sparse and we don't really have good estimates. But if, if I push you to think about the best estimates we have, what would you say is kind of the extent of the unmet demand for housing in urban areas? Yeah, so th- this is really a great question. And, and to be honest, I wish I had a better response for this. Uh, but I but I think, you know, typically when we think about unmet demand, we, you know, in, in policy circles, we typically go to this number of the 10 million housing short. Where does that number come from? That's exactly what I was going to say, right? That the 10 million number is constantly kind of floated around. And, and there's also this other number, which is that there, there's a demand for 350 to 400,000 units every year that is, you know, remains unmet. Um, and this number, it's really, you know, I'm assuming that this number has been calculated by looking at the difference between population growth and available housing units over a period of time, annual depletion of existing stock, also looking at annual housing supply shortage. But there is no detailed methodology for the calculation of this figure that's available, right? So at best, this is an estimate. And we don't know really where this number has come from. And we need to be able to understand the source and the calculations behind this 10 million figure. Uh, so that the solutions that we're proposing are more appropriate to the problem at hand, right? And we need more disaggregated data estimates of shortages by income. Uh, but at the same time, we also have to think about the fact that simply looking at shortages doesn't help us understand, you know, where overcrowding is an issue or where housing improvements may be needed or whether there's an oversupply of certain forms of housing in the market. Uh, so it's it's kind of, you know, I think it's really critical to get a sense of what the nature and demand of supply is. So your question was more about, you know, what are the best estimates that we have? And to be honest, I think that there has to be more work done on this. I think the census data last year that was released, there, there was some more additional data on housing stock itself. And so that could be looked at. I think PSLM data, PIDE has again tried to look at the deficit in the quality of homes and access to amenities. Homelessness, let's say, is one way of assessing unmet demand, right? So we, if you look at census data, for example, the homeless population in Pakistan is quite low. It's about 38,000 people, uh, which must be an underestimate, in my opinion. With 38,000 um, across the whole country. Across the whole country, and it's down from about 144,000 in 1998, right? So I don't know what happened. Where, uh, this, this has to be an underestimation, right? I mean, they can't be 38,000. But what I guess what I'll give them is that homelessness isn't as pervasive in Pakistan as it is in a lot of other contexts, right? Sure, sure. So that's, so that's one thing, right? Uh, but there just remains a lot more to be done, right? So I think there are some primary data sets that could be relied on to get some sense of what this unmet demand uh, looks like. 
but there, there's a lot more to be done. And it's interesting because you see in, in, in a number of other countries, there are actually all these market surveys also done to, you know, to get a sense of what, you know, at what price points can the market intervene? What does demand look like? Uh, it's also important to get a sense of, you know, spatially, um, where, you know, where are people living? Uh, what are the kind of issues that they're facing in different parts of the city as well? And and to use that to then intervene accordingly. So, so yeah, I'm sorry. I, I wish I had a better response to what the best estimate is. But uh, but really, I think we, there's a lot more that has to be done on this front. Right. So, so I want to take your advice um, on like trying to dig deeper into these demand and supply issues um, and trying to kind of start understanding, you know, the broad reasons for why there is this unmet demand for, for housing in urban areas. Right. So if I think of this conceptually, you know, as an economist, I think of like, well, an unmet demand must mean that there is high demand and the reasons why there's high demand and the reasons why there is low supply or a kind of inadequate supply or misdirected supply. Right. So if we start thinking about why there is high demand, um, you know, the two kind of obvious um, aspects that, that, that pop up are high population growth and high kind of rural to urban migration. Right. So so if you look at our population growth rates from the 60s, from the late 60s, our population is you know, almost quadrupled from 60 million to, you know, somewhere between 220 and 235 million now. Um, and, you know, by, by estimates, by World Bank estimates, is going to be somewhere between 270 and 300 million in 2050. Um, now, if you think about where this population, the composition of this population across rural and urban areas, we've also had very, very high rates of urbanization, right? So in, in um, 2017, uh, we had 10 cities with a population of more than 1 million and 99 cities with more than a population um, of 100,000 people. And that's that's almost double from from the previous census. So we've had we've had crazy rates of urbanization, um, um, and you know this is concentrated also in these large urban centers like Peshawar and Lahore. Um, but if you were to think of other places in the world where urbanization has happened at such a rate, you might have expected that the market would respond to this in some way, and that you would see a lot of kind of adequate housing um, in 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 these large urban cities. Um, so in, in many ways, our cities have kind of failed to respond to urbanization. And, and we can talk later about whether it's the government's fault or it's, it's the market's fault um, or what that means. But um, if you were to think of why it is that the market has kind of failed to respond to this high um, increase in demand, what would be your response? So I guess we'd have to think about what we mean here by supply and by demand, right? Uh, because if we think about it, there is actually ample supply for housing at the upper end of the income segment, right? So therefore, so there is, there is, and I, I always call it an oversupply, just because those the the urban unit, for instance, also estimated that sixty percent of housing in Punjab, for instance, lies vacant, right? So there is, there's actually a lot of supply to meet a smaller chunk of that demand, right? And there isn't an, an there, there's demand, of course, that's the reason why these they're building, but this demand is Basically, for um, you know, uh, in, basically, this demand rests with uh, high-income groups and investors at the moment. So there are more and more gated communities that are coming up for the elite and for middle classes. Um, and you know, anyone in any city, any major city in Pakistan, will you know, is bound to run into a number of like housing society ads that are kind of everywhere. 
I guess that's that's part of my question, right? Like, why is it that there are so many people who need housing? Sure, not all of them can afford it, uh, but there must be many people who can, you know, if given the right tools, they would be able to approach kind of being able to afford housing. But all we see is this kind of um, elite housing. Yeah, and I guess I, I you know, I'll, I'll I'll come to this uh, question of why this is, but I, I guess I want to also acknowledge that there there have been some small shifts in the market, right? That we've seen. So, for example, so there's obviously a difference between the kind of housing that the formal housing market is supplying and what the let's say informal housing market is supplying as well. But even within the formal housing market, you see that developers are offering smaller housing units. So there's five, three, seven marla houses that are being offered. These are primarily on the peripheries of cities. And this this didn't this trend didn't exist as much as, you know, maybe uh, 10 years ago, right? So, so plot sizes have gotten smaller in some ways to try to cater to growing demand um, for more relatively lower cost housing. But the problem again here is uh, even if that's addressing a portion of the demand, that still leaves a lot of people out. And just the size of the unit doesn't always mean that it's affordable either. Right. Uh, so so they, but, I, but I wanted to acknowledge that there, there, there are small shifts that we're seeing in the markets or the market is trying to adapt to, in some ways to that. And they're also, you know, informally, I also meant that, you know, there's a lot of kind of informal subdivision of land. So there's smaller plots that are, if somebody owned a piece of land, let's say they're just carving that out. So, you know, plotting, cutting, they're you know, selling it on to people coming from different places. But then that has its own set of challenges. So there's some kind of action that's happening. Uh, but but then the question still remains, right? Whatever is happening is still not adequate to address the kind of growing demand that exists at the moment. And I think really, you know, one can say that there there are a number of kind of technical reasons for that as well, right? So you could you could potentially say that there are a lot of bottlenecks um, to build, uh, you know, housing at a larger scale for lower um, so lower low to middle income groups. It it may just be that existing bylaws have very high standards or land costs in cities are very high, so it isn't possible to do so, or maybe that it's difficult to find financing for schemes themselves. But primarily, kind of based on my experience of conversations with different developers, um, and they're very honest about this, right? They, 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 they generally say that it's just not profitable for them to try to address the demand that exists on the lower end of the spectrum. They could use that same land to try to target higher income groups, let's say. Um, and so a lot of them are like, why would I, as a commercial entity, try to curtail my profits, <laughs> right? Uh, and so at the end of the day, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why supply isn't increasing in line with the actual demand that exists. I also want to touch on um, on something that I know that you're doing research on, which is the role of speculation. Um, and... Uh, I know that you've been having some conversations with, with with some players in the real estate market. Can you tell me more about what we mean by speculation and how it's affecting the housing market? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess you know what I've what I found is that my definition of speculation typically differs from <clears throat> a lot of other people's as well. But but the way that I understand speculation is that you are investing in land and housing not for immediate use, but essentially to be able to sell at a later point to make a profit on that, right? So your primary purpose, <clears throat> in my opinion, is, is not to build a house, but it's just to kind of use it for 
a range of other things, right? So you may sell it to, it's, it's in some ways like a store of wealth rather than, uh, or a commodity rather than an actual use for housing. So, uh, you know, this speculation is, is extremely widespread um, in, in the Pakistani context now, right? What we see is anyone who wants to make any kind of money or wants to save real estate seems to offer the best option. Um, and we're seeing, we've seen this trend increase more and more since 2001, right? When there were more remittances coming in after 9-11, interestingly, because people outside were a bit hesitant to keep their money abroad and started sending their money back in. <clears throat> and there's been this kind of boom in the real estate sector. So, I mean, I, I mean, I can talk about various aspects of it, but what we're seeing now is that land and the way that land is conceptualized has transformed over a period of time, right? So, so, so land itself is first and foremost, in my, from what I'm seeing, conceived of as a commodity. And so it's conceived of as something that you invest in at various stages of uh, the development of a housing uh, project, um, rather than, you know, developing a project itself and selling it to the end users themselves. So there are a lot of kind of, you know, other actors that are invested in this process that are driving up uh, land costs and are driving up housing costs for people who are eventually going to come and live in these units. So based on, you know, kind of initial conversations, and I try to ask this, and I've been trying to ask this for a couple of years, is, you know, how many times, for example, does a piece of land exchange hands before getting to the end user? And, you know, the answer typically is something like six to seven times. And this may just be the official, you know, the, the official transfers that takes that take place. But sometimes files are, you know, they're open files. And so in that sense, they're not even registered anywhere because people are trying to, in some ways, avoid paying taxes. So that every time that um, land exchanges hands and typically the price goes up with each kind of purchase, right? And, and there's a recent study, actually, uh, some researchers looked at Barrier Town and they looked at just the, the the way that speculation is taking place there, the number of times land exchanges hands and the techniques that are employed by developers to increase land values block by block. Um, ultimately, you know, these end up increasing land costs for the end consumer, um, which is what we're most interested in. So what I'm hearing from you is that there is kind of enough of a if not kind of direct causal evidence there is enough of a of a sense that it's speculation that leads to an increase in um in housing prices um now given that that is you know goes directly contrary to the government's goal here or at least government stated goal here in trying to keep housing affordable for those who cannot afford it right now um what are the kinds of things that the government can do to kind of rein in speculation in in in, in some way um, and again, is it, is it the government's job to do so in your view? Yeah, I think the government definitely has a, a role to play in trying to rein in speculation. Um, and there seems to be a little more acknowledgement of this also more recently. You know, they've tried to increase tax rates, for example, in terms of, uh, you know, selling a plot later on after after buying it and then the number of years that you can kind of hold on to it. Um there, there, there are a number of ways, and I guess you can, you have to increase, you know, a non, maybe, maybe impose a non-utilization fee on vacant plots, 
And this is something that the LDA, for example, has already done in some places, but it's such a nominal amount that it doesn't really kind of hinder um, any investment and speculation. But I think, I, mean, I guess I'll just come back to a larger question, right? Does the, does the government, should the government play a role in regulating the the real estate sector and thinking about speculation? Because the sector is completely unregulated at the moment, although there are people who would disagree with this. Um and there is a lot of pushback from developers themselves, right? So I was just having a conversation with someone recently who said that, you know, he was in a room with, with a number of big developers and this question um, as part of a housing committee. And there was this question of, are we going to uh, try to introduce some form of ways to regulate this industry? There's a big push from uh, big developers saying, you know, there's no way like uh, we're going to let this happen and the industry just needs to kind of continue the way it is. So there has to be some kind of willingness to do this. Um, and because the state itself is complicit in a lot of um, speculation itself, I think that drive doesn't necessarily exist in the same form at the moment. So I want to move on now to the government's role in kind of more directly meeting this unmet demand for housing, right? So we um, we had this uh, program from the recently ousted PTI government called the Naya Pakistan Housing Scheme, uh, which is something that we heard a lot about, but we saw very little in terms of action. Um, so can you walk us through what was the what was the vision of the scheme and how it aimed to achieve this vision? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Nea Pakistan housing program, uh, like you said, was introduced by the PTI government. Uh, this was introduced about four years ago in October 2018. And broadly, it promised to facilitate the construction of five million homes in the next five years. And the idea was that the majority of these new homes would be built for or would address the needs of low and lower to middle-income groups who have the highest kind of demand for housing in both urban and in rural areas. So since this announcement, there have actually been a number of different proposals and models that have been floated around as falling under the umbrella of the program. And, you know, fa- frankly, it's quite difficult to keep track of what's been happening. But I'd say the program has attempted to achieve its targets through two key mechanisms on the supply side and one kind of mechanism on the demand side, right? So on the supply side, one way in which it's tried to encourage um, you know, greater supply of uh, particularly affordable housing is by attempting to facilitate the private sector. Um, and it calls this on its website as like the real game changer. Uh, so the idea is to try to get um, the private sector to build more on private land um, by kind of streamlining approval processes for developers. This getting approvals from regulatory authorities is one of the biggest challenges that developers face. So it could take you know like two years, three years, because there's just a lot of bureaucracy involved in this. Um, and also, obviously, a lot of kind of, you know, um, cash that's being transferred under the table. Uh, so so that's one issue that they, they said we're going to try to address. Um, they also have offered to coordinate with different government entities for infrastructure uh, provision, provide tax and regulatory incentives. So you know, we can talk a little about the construction package that also sought to do that, but then also, um, you know, for period of time said that anyone can invest in land and their source of income won't be asked. Um, but the idea here is also that they would, uh, the government would connect the developer to end users and buyers that they have registered under this program. Uh, those people who have access to finance and may be eligible for a kind of one-time subsidy of a house. So one idea is to work with 
the private to facilitate the private sector to build more housing. Uh, the other idea is to work to facilitate uh, development authorities and entities in urban areas and provincial governments in peri-urban areas to build uh, more housing on government land. And in return for which NAFTA, which is uh, the Neapakzan Housing Development Authority, uh, which is responsible for looking after this program, will then also offer them tax rebates and help with coordination and connect them to end users just as they would on private projects. So these are kind of two ways on the supply side that they're aiming to encourage uh, both the private sector and development authorities to build more affordable units. On the demand side, what they've tried to do is they've tried to enhance access to housing finance, uh, one, by trying to support stronger kind of foreclosure laws, but then also setting mandatory targets for housing and construction loans uh, for commercial banks. And then what they've done is they've introduced tier-based interest rate subsidies under the Mera Pakistan, Mera Ghar program. So there are four tiers here. So zero and one are at the lower end and two and three, you can get loans for up to six million and 10 million. So relatively, sorry, more middle income households uh, for tiers two and three. And borrowers can borrow for up to three to nine percent interest for the first 10 years, after which these uh, rates kind of adjust to market rates. Uh, they've also, as part of this, introduced a down payment subsidy for eligible borrowers. And they're trying to work with banks on mechanisms to verify informal incomes. Right. So in a nutshell, I guess the goal has been that they're going to facilitate the construction of these 5 million homes through the private sector and through development authorities and provincial entities through a range of incentives and connections with the end user and then also enhance buying power of potential customers through subsidized access to housing finance and kind of trying to address concerns shared by the banking sector. So in some ways, you know, they're trying to create an enabling environment for housing construction. So this is the larger kind of program, uh, we think about what have they achieved, right? Now we're four years into the program and there's been, of course, a lot of kind of political instability. So let's keep that in mind. But over this period, if we think about what has the Nea Pakistan program achieved? So firstly, if we look at it again on the numbers of housing units built. And as per the Nea Pakistan housing uh, program website, I checked again yesterday, uh, there are about 22,000 housing units that have been completed. And 18,000 of these are built through a Hoover Foundation and about 3,500 through the Workers' Welfare Fund. Right? Uh, so this is the Hoover Foundation housing um, scheme, not the Nea Pakistan <laughs> housing scheme. Uh, yeah, so what a Hoover does is basically it has... Uh, it gives out small loans to uh, people who already have a piece of land. So I think from last last time I spoke to them, it was about five lakh rupees. So if you already have a piece of land and you want to build on it, or you just need a little bit extra cash to complete it, Akuwit is providing loans of this size, and it got money from the Ministry of Housing for this purpose. I think around 2019. So at that time, it wasn't part of the Neapakistan Housing Program. The Ministry of Housing was involved. Uh, but the government did give a Kuwait money to do this because before that they would give out loans for like up to 50,000 rupees, right? So the nature of loans is very different. But the housing, again, like the connection to the program is a little bit tenuous. Um, and even the, let's say the uh, workers' welfare fund projects uh, that are now kind of listed under the Nea Pakistan Housing Authority's completed projects, these have also 
been initiated as early as 2011, you know, like uh, 2009. So these are actually older projects that may have just been completed in recent years uh, in terms of their physical construction. Uh, but again, right, like they didn't come up during the past four years. So it's, it's, it's a longer kind of timeline in mind. So that those are all the units that have been completed. So, so what you're telling us is there were about 18,000 housing units that can be attributed to a previous program um, by the by the housing ministry through a Hovat, and then the rest were initiated before the Naya Pakistan housing scheme started. So in effect, the Naya Pakistan housing scheme has, has built zero additional housing that can be attributed to the scheme. In effect, you could say that, that neither the federal government nor the provincial kind of initiatives that have been taken have built any units so far. Um, I, I guess what, I, what I'll credit them for to some degree is that they've tried to facilitate approvals for developers and streamline those processes. Although based on conversations with developers, the response is still kind of mixed on how much that's helped or, or hasn't helped. Uh, but let's look at what's happening on the demand side, right? Uh, so so there's a lot of um, kind of noise around this uh, target of 5% uh, lending for housing and construction. And banks have been lending, you know, a lot more um, towards this end uh, over since this you know, mandatory target was introduced in July 2020. Um, and the Mera Pakistan Mera Ghar program was introduced in December 2020. But again, uh, you know, just I'm reading uh, through the Pese's, uh kind of posts on on these targets. It doesn't. This doesn't necessarily mean that the extra amount of money that's been given out is being given out for, for the Mera Pakistan Mera Ghar program, right? The housing and construction loans could be used for anything, uh, any kind of construction project. It could be used for real estate investment trusts, and so we don't really know necessarily where that money is going, right? And based on certain World Bank documents, also progress on the Mera Pakistan Mera Ghar scheme has been somewhat muted there so then i was trying to see you know i mean like between december 2020 when the program was introduced and let's say june 2022 so a year and a half the amount of loans given out just for house building if we just focus in on that to consumers not to bank employees have increased by about 133 percent so that's a really big jump but what's the but what's the base here if it's a really low base right and the base is actually quite low. And the, and, and the thing is that the state bank used to uh, release these quarterly reports looking at the amount of loans, the number of borrowers, kind of distribution by banks up till 2019, and then just stopped doing that. So we still don't have a sense of who is being given these additional loans, how many borrowers are there each month, and what, you know, I'm mean, trying to find any kind of hints to get a sense of you know, who are these loans being offered to, because if they're being offered to a small number of borrowers, uh, you know, maybe they're not even falling under the, the Mera Ghar, Mera Pakistan program. And these are just, you know, people sort of well-to-do people who are looking for housing finance. So what what we can tell so far is that as per some World Bank uh, documentation uh, through some of their projects, uh, what one can see is that most of these loans at the moment are being offered uh, most of the Mera Pakistan Mera Ghar program, and we don't know how many of the, these there are in, in exactly, but they're being offered to tier two and tier three borrowers. And these are people, so tier two, I've, 
basically people uh, who may be building a house up to five mullahs um, and they can borrow uh, up to six million rupees from the bank. And tier three is up to 10 mullahs for a flat up to 2000 square feet. And that's up to 10 million. And so these are the sort of, sort of middle income group segments that are benefiting from this program. Uh, there, there are no tier zero and one from what I understand. There's just one other thing that I wanted to point out with this with the program. And it's that, you know, the construction program uh, pro- it was introduced uh, after COVID hit um, under NAFTA's umbrella, where essentially a lot of tax incentives uh, and regulatory incentives were given to developers. And, and like I said earlier, that, you know, people weren't asked about their source of income. So, uh, before investing in real estate. So a lot of black money is said to have moved into real estate um, and land prices actually skyrocketed after this amnesty scheme, so to speak, was introduced. Right. So so th- there are kind of contradictory uh, trends happening at the same time, right? or contradictory initiatives that are being taken at the same time. So on the one hand, um, cost of construction, the cost of land has gone up significantly after the introduction of the construction project, uh, construction program, sorry, the, um, uh, yeah, the, basically the, after the introducing of the construction package. Uh, but then also you're trying, you know, the government is trying to uh, facilitate the building of more affordable housing. So these are, you know, they don't, they don't line up together. And um, there, you know, of course, remains a lot more to be done over here. But this is, I mean, the government in some ways set itself up for failure by thinking, coming up with this five million term, right? And it also lacks, suggests some lack of imagination of what the problem is if we're just thinking about housing units and nothing about improvement at the moment. So, so I don't want to be disparaging, but the numbers that you've described to me are, you know, as you said, a tiny proportion of the five million target. Um, and it seems that a lot of what's being built or a lot of the financing that's been provided is not being targeted in the right way. Um, and, you know, this may not be the intention of, of, you know, of the designers of this policy, but that very much seems to be what, what ends up happening. Um, and, and again, I don't want to be disparaging because these are very hard policies to design and these are very kind of hard problems to solve. Um, and I guess this this may be kind of an opportunity for us to pivot a little bit. We've been talking about Pakistan solely, but but urban housing shortages are, are a global phenomenon. Um, are comparable countries faring better or is this problem kind of truly global? I think nearly all countries around the world are facing kind of, you know, some form of challenge around housing. And it's, you know, I wouldn't, I would say it's not just housing shortages, but cities are dealing with challenges around service provision in underserved, neglected neighborhoods. They're dealing with challenges around improvement or upgrading of existing housing stock. They're looking at challenges around growing segregation and inequality. And what's interesting is that although, you know, globally we're seeing cities trying to deal with growing housing shortages, there are also paradoxically also they're also seeing an oversupply of high-end housing units for those who don't have an immediate demand for housing, right? So there's something structural at play here. Uh, and, you know, we see, read, I've been reading about this in Rwanda and Tanzania and Kenya and Angola in, in different cities in India. Also, I mean, London, again, you know, even, even European cities um, where you have a lot of vacancies despite housing shortages. So I think... We, we we have to keep kind of thinking about why this kind of oversupply exists to really get to the heart of what 
the challenge over here is and 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 maybe that's a debate about whether housing should be seen as a right or a commodity but there is a puzzle here right in terms of whether the demand is emanating from low to middle income groups, but housing continues to cater to those at the top um, in a number of countries around the world. Is there anything that we can learn from other countries or other policies that have been tried in other countries? On the one hand, there's a sense of what we shouldn't do, right? But then there's also the question of what can we do based on experiences from different places. And again, here, I think the Latin American context offers many lessons, uh, but there are also, of course, a number of lessons to be learned globally from the African continent and East Asia and South Asia itself. Um, In in 2019, the United Cities and local government, uh, local governments, which is a UCLG, which is a global network of cities and local regional metropolitan governments and their associates, uh, published this really great report on rethinking housing policies. And it has a very detailed section on policy experiments and the promotion of adequate housing in different parts of the world, offering examples of what has and hasn't worked. And, you know, they talk about experiences with upgrading, uh, which was once something that we were, you know, we used to talk about at least more. But again, we, you know, we don't really focus on that as much anymore. But then also thinking about, you know, how to better serve underserved neighborhoods, thinking about subsidized rental programs. Uh, introducing housing policies that are supported by city plans and different planning instruments, also thinking about including the right to housing in uh, a country's constitution itself. And what I find um, useful is, uh, so South Africa's example is quite interesting as well, because their government uh, introduced a state subsidized housing program that very successfully delivered over 3 million housing units since like the mid-90s. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, housing backlogs continue to rise. So over the past kind of decade, there's been a shift in policy to try from, you know, building these units in greenfield sites to providing service sites or upgrading existing settlements. And and a number of uh, households have actually benefited from this problem, uh, from this kind of assistance, right? And then in Mexico itself, the, the government there built a number of housing units um, again, on the peripheries uh, of their cities. And what they found was that the, they had to deal with this issue of abandoned housing because the houses weren't adequate. Uh, they weren't well connected. So again, that's something to think about. Building houses in many cases turns out to be a bad policy. Depending on where you're building it and what your assumptions are about the people who will come and live in, uh, in it, right? So housing isn't just something that's to be seen in isolation. It has to be connected to transport and to land use and to employment. So all of those things have to kind of go hand in hand. Uh, so there are a lot of examples, I think, that we could look at. Mexico also has like a one room policy where, you know, you can get finance to build one additional room if that's what you're looking for. There are assisted uh, self-help built housing programs. And we used to um, run this uh, blog called Invisible Cities on Tin Keith some time back. And we had someone, because I think, uh, you know, we it, it's quite, it's more rare to come to find examples of when things have gone right rather than when things have gone <laughs> wrong. And so we reached out to uh, someone, uh, her name is Smita Rahut, uh, and she had worked in Pune earlier. Um, and, you know, I was like, you know, you talked, what, we had once talked about this successful upgrading program in Pune and I was like, why don't you write about what went right over there? Um, and let you know, let's try to focus some of our energies on on examples that we can also learn from in, in that sense. 
Um, and she, yeah, she wrote about this um, this program that was introduced by um, the Pune Municipal Corporation together with this NGO um, that aimed to provide um, housing, like upgraded housing for several informal settlements in the city. And the key thing that they kind of focused on was that they tried to support existing livelihoods. Um, they made sure that they didn't displace people who, uh, you know, that they were trying to help, that the community itself was involved in that process. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, we can talk endlessly about the kind of successful examples or examples that haven't worked. But there's there's definitely much to be learned. And, um, I, I was, and someone the other day was also saying, you know, maybe European cities also offer a lot of lessons in terms of uh, rent control or just thinking about housing in a, in a kind of different way. So... So yeah, there's a, there's a lot, a lot to learn for sure. So, so, so I want to touch on something that you brought up, which is, um, you know, this difference between thinking about housing as a right or thinking about housing as a commodity. Mm. Um, how would like if let's say the we were to start thinking of housing as a right, mm. how would that practically change how any of the actors play a role? I think there would have to be, and I've been hearing um, Arif Hassan Saab speak about this, there would have to be some form of massive land reform that went with it, right? Uh, so if housing is seen as a right, then that means that it is, that basically everyone is entitled to have an adequate, viable kind of house to live in. Um, and then there would have to be ways to figure out, uh, I think, one how that kind of target could be met, um, where the government needed to intervene, what could be done by the private sector. I mean, I've been, you know, listen a lot to um, uh, Gautam Ban, and I'll talk a little bit more about him as well, who's a scholar and researcher in India. And, and you know, he says, you know, there are particular points in the market uh, where the private sector can intervene and there are particular points where it can't. And a lot of housing is actually built by people themselves. And so you have to kind of think about the right mix um, and what can can work in conjunction with one another. But if you treat housing primarily as a commodity, which means that, you know, first and foremost, it's kind of seen as an investable asset. Uh, I think that that's going to have to change, right? So we're going to have to curb the way that speculation uh, happens at the moment. Um, and that's a really challenging task in some ways, right? How do you prevent that from happening because a lot of times these days people compare the land market to like the stock market right and that's the way that plots of lands or files exchange hands so i think there has to be some kind of uh limitation to that model of development which um, you, you talked yeah. earlier about how it's it's really hard to make mm -hmm. any any of that happen that it's really hard to you know that there is this profit motive and how do you convince someone not to invest in land if that's the best investment they can make and how do you convince yeah. a developer to not build for the rich if that's the most profitable thing so so that's the one difficulty i have you know when thinking about thinking of housing as a right which is sure you and i could think of housing as a right and the government could decree that it's a right mm. but what would that practically change i think yeah you're totally right i think the, these are really challenging kind of issues to look at right. i think if housing is seen as a right there there's some instances for example where you know the government 
in Islamabad or in Karachi in particular recently has come in and has just demolished people's houses um, saying that, you know, they were living there illegally or whatever reasoning that they might have. And if there is a right to housing uh, that, you know, that people feel and that people are entitled to in some ways, and that can be used to essentially also be used as kind of uh, an advocacy um, tool, right? To say that now it's the government's responsibility to provide people with housing, providing, you know, uh, sort of potentially lower income groups with housing is not something that the private sector, as we have seen, right, repeatedly, despite wanting to wish it otherwise, is going to do. Um, and so so it could be used in, in that sense as well, right? It's, it's, so there, there is use for it. I think, but uh, but you're you're right. I think in terms of um, and and I don't know. Also, don't blame people for a lot of people for investing in land, right? Because that's the best way that you can um, actually make sure that your money doesn't uh, devalue, particularly given where the dollar is going. So 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 I don't know. I think I've, I've been struggling with a lot of these challenges also, but I think. Uh, there have to be mechanisms in place to regulate the industry and to curtail the way that uh, land investments do happen, right? Um, and there has to be, I guess, some thought around that uh, to be able to to have a more equitable housing market in the long run. I know, and 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 yeah. I and I take the point that this is yeah. at least partly a failure of imagination. Mm. In that, you know, for instance, in the U.S., it's very hard to think of healthcare as a right. Because it's very hard to get uh, healthcare if you don't, if you can't afford it. Um, yeah. Whereas in other countries that are much poorer than the U.S., you know, you can easily think of healthcare as a right, mm. um, and you can get housing and you can get healthcare. Sorry, funded by the government. Um, and so, at least partly, yeah. this is this is a failure of imagination in that um, that you know we could conceive of a different world in which uh, in which you know that could happen. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, land should either be used for productive purposes, like, you know, agriculture or used for housing or to use it for, you know, industry. But uh, but I think just if we're just using it to create value, which is, you know, a lot of times quite artificial, that ends up distorting the way that the market functions. Um, and, and yeah, I guess that, that they have there have to be some kind of ways to make sure that yeah, I mean, you know, the other the other markets that aren't allowed to function as free markets, right? You can't buy and sell kidneys, for instance, <laughs> legally. Yeah. Um, and so, again, you know, if, if we, we could imagine a world in which you're not allowed to buy and sell land that is supposed to be for housing, that's just simply illegal. I'm not sure that's a good idea, uh, but I'm saying <laughs> that you know th- there is a radically different way of looking at the world than than the way the world exists right now. Uh, yeah, and it has to be. It will have to be some form of a radical shift, right? Because the uh, the the long term costs of the kind of model that we've decided to go with um, are quite high. Uh, so you know, we, the cities are just sprawling further and further out. We're losing agricultural land. All this money isn't going into anything productive at all. Commuting costs are increasing. Uh, it's just not feasible in the long run. So there is, there has to be some rethinking around the way that we're currently imagining the way that housing and urban development is taking place more generally. So what are some big picture takeaways from this conversation in terms of how to understand this problem better and how to start approaching solutions? For me, the key thing that I would also want um, to kind of take away from this is that 
there there isn't any one single intervention right that can address overall housing demand at the moment so there we have to explore a variety of mechanisms that include incremental housing models that that you know attempt to understand the differences in housing preferences and costs between rural and urban areas that focus on removing housing bottlenecks thinking about regulating the sector um so there there there's a variety of mechanisms in place and we have to i think think about housing not in isolation but in 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 a more integrated kind of manner um and also you know critically and we've been touching upon this repeatedly is that you know land politics remains so intertwined with the way that um uh, politics also takes place here and and state actors themselves are quite involved in this process uh so I don't know I just kept going back to your uh, initial kind of question of you know why are housing shortages so persistent in the case uh, in Pakistan's case um and I think it's essentially because the system and it, I don't know I, I keep going back to this uh this Dutch researcher um Vander Linden uh, who wrote in 1994 um and what he wrote i feel still rings true like you know two decades on and i and i feel like i keep repeating this but but you know he said that the way there there've been multiple times when the government has you know vocally said that it wants to focus on housing um but it hasn't been able to do so because the existing system continues to kind of further the interests of landowners and dealers and developers and investors and speculators across political divides right and so the burden on the state to provide low cost housing is quite limited uh, and demands from the state are seen in a lot of cases as favors rather than as rights so i uh, yeah i just i find it quite quite depressing actually that it we you know this was written in 1994 and we're in 2022 and much of what he said before i think uh, still holds true Uh, so Fiza, I, I usually end by asking uh, guests for any recommendations for listeners who want to learn more about uh, what we talked about. Um, so, mm-hmm. any recommendations for people who want to learn more about the housing crisis? Yeah. So my key recommendation uh, is that everybody <laughs> take this course uh, that's on housing justice uh, by Gautam Ban and Swasti Kharish. Uh, it's available for free on Coursera. and um you know it's an excellent course uh, it's it's you know it's very easy to kind of look through their videos see what they're saying and their their readings and exercises there as well and it, it it's really for anyone interested in issues of housing at you know whether you're a policy maker or a student or uh, and I, i i myself have learned a lot uh by just going through the different lectures that they have i mean yeah it's it really breaks down issues quite well so i would I'd highly kind of recommend that. Fiza, thank you so much for being here. This has been enlightening for me and I'm sure for many of those who are listening. Um I'm really excited to see what you find in your research on the deep underlying causes of speculation. And once you're done, we can have you back here to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for having me again. This has been this has been great. A lot more to think about, I think. You can find some links to what we talked about in this episode and to the recommendations made by our guest today 
in the show notes of this episode or on unpackingus.com. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode. Also, I'd love to hear what you like and don't like about the show. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can email me at asad at unpackingus.com. I can't promise to respond to every email, but I do promise to read and think about every email. Thank you for listening.